First, we talked about the Psalms of Ascent, and we talked a lot about how when the psalmist is talking about ascending, it doesn't just mean like a spiritual ascent, but it is also a physical ascent that they were focused on there in the midst in Jerusalem, and how Jerusalem sort of sits in the midst of some beautiful hills all around, and kind of like in a little bit of a bowl or a nest, and that the psalmist would declare that as they looked up towards Jerusalem, even though Jerusalem's not the highest mountain around, but as they looked up towards Jerusalem, they always saw that that was where their help was coming from. And we talked about how these were, Psalm said, as they ascended up to the mountain of Jerusalem, which even though it's not the tallest mount there, it's still a hike to get up there, and easily defensible in some beautiful ways with valleys um, to the east and the west and the south, and you just kind of really needed to worry about that northern approach. So we set the Psalms in their physical setting. But I think I did you a disservice a bit because I didn't really talk enough about how the Psalms are constantly sort of speaking just directly out of place and time and space. Now, in many ways, the Psalms live beyond that moment of space and time. And they can apply to the voices and the thoughts of us here today. They can connect us with our ancient Israelite ancestors our ancient Judean Jewish ancestors, as well as those followers of Jesus in the Greco-Roman world, and then all of the saints for the last 2,000 years. We've all been praying these psalms or hearing them read. And maybe you grew up in a tradition where you prayed the Book of Common Prayer, or you said a psalm every single Sunday if you were in a liturgical church tradition, or maybe you were just handed one of those inexpensive New Testaments that are given to people when they're trying to evangelize. And it always just only has the New Testament, but it always had Psalms and Proverbs at the back too. So as we think about the book of Psalms and where they come from, even though they transpose all of that space and time, they still landed in a particular people in a particular space. And years ago, I was in Israel leading a tour And I did just hear from Israel this week, by the way, and we are, God willing, apart from anything crazy, we will be able to lead our next tour now after many years of the pandemic. Um, We'll be there in June. So if you want to join us, you can. God willing. Woohoo! Yeah. So when I was there, I was trying to find a shepherd experience for our people who were on this tour bus with us. And I was lamenting the fact that it was very difficult to find. And we passed a gas station... And um, actually, some of you in the room, some people in the room or in the Zoom or outside might have been on this trip. And I yelled, stop, stop, because <laughs> there were sheep off to the side of the road. This, but, but it was really, like, not the best, like, shepherd sheep experience because there's a gas station. And then there's, like, trucks zooming by, right? And you're like, let's look at the sheep. And so it was unique. But as we were there, and I was the whole time kind of going, I pulled over because it's the only sheep I could find that late in the year. But I was a bit sad about it, um, in the midst of this oasis. Um, I don't know if you can see, like, there's the gas station in the back above the horizon line. As I was sitting there sort of frustrated and lamenting the whole thing, the, the young man who was shepherding the sheep saw all these crazy people sort of, like, jump out and sit on the side of the road and start to, like, weirdly hover, right? Like, if you were in your office <laughs> and then a whole bunch of people pulled off and were like, so 
You got a Word document open there, huh? So it started weirdly. Happening. So he called all the sheep a little bit closer to him. And then once we, he saw that we were going to just sit and not get too close, then he, he let them back out again. And so I was like, oh, that's kind of fun to see them listen to the shepherd's voice. And all these things happened. And then he started to lead the sheep down through this little, not even a valley, like a little wadi kind of area. And as he was leading them past that oasis and going through, he started singing. And I was like, oh, why did I think that like David wrote the Psalms once he had like a nice desk in like a cool writing area in the palace? Why did I think that they came out of like some sort of dedicated study writer's retreat um, where once he had like time and space and like the right, <laughs> the right thing, he got together with all of the other contributors to the book of Psalms and said, let's write this stuff down. And instead I thought, ah, oh, yes, these were written out in nature, out while walking, while shepherding your flock by yourself and thinking about the image and the metaphors of that and how God is with you and how God shepherds us and all of those pictures, like how God is our rock and God is shade at my right hand and all of that. And I was so deeply grateful for this weird stop on the side of the road with the gas station because it just continued to speak to me as well while we were there in a lot of different ways. <clears throat> And it reminds me of what the rabbis said in their Midrash commentary on the book of Psalms, on Tehillim, the praises. Moses gave Israel the five books, and David gave Israel the five books of the Psalms. It's a beautiful picture. It's not exactly true. Um, there are lots of contributors to the Psalms. Even those Psalms that we find that say, of David. It could just simply be referring to the house and the line of David. It doesn't necessarily mean that David wrote it. Um, and it's even possible, and yes, sit tight, that women contributed too. We don't know exactly who all the individual authors of the Psalms are, but we know that they functioned as Psalms of praise and assent. And Pastor Kevin talked last week about praise psalms and how they were speaking that language of the culture. He even talked about how some may have been taken, you know, sort of, and then improved upon from the Ugaritic literature. And I don't know, I was laughing in the back because years ago we used to call those saved songs. Anybody in the like deep evangelical movement? I was evangelical adjacent, but I heard this term a lot. And it was sort of like, well, we heard these people, um, like, here comes the sun by the Beatles. And then you just change the U to an O. You got yourself a saved song. And so I was thinking about that as Kevin was preaching, that, that there was psalms of praise that were part of the culture and how we could sit and sing. It's even this beautiful line that talks about how God can't sort of like enter in through the gates of Jerusalem, that the gates have to open up. And um, my daughter recently was telling me about how in Egypt, she's studying Egyptology right now. That's what you do when you're in elementary school. And um, how like the bigger the gods, the more powerful they were. And I got to say, I know where that language comes from and how the Bible uses it because our God is so powerful. The gates themselves have to like the thresholds and the lintels of the gates have to just go away because our God's so big can't even enter through the gates. All that to be said, I get to, after that beautiful worship, jump us into Psalms of Lament. <laughs> so here we go. Are you ready? It's going to be a real downer. Um, not, I hope not. <laughs> In our Bible, overwhelmingly, there are more Psalms of Lament than Psalms of Praise. In fact, about the first 70 plus or so songs 
in the Psalms are Psalms of lament. And it actually reminds me of the picture of the land that God gives Israel. That when we think of the promised land, when we think of land that God's going to give God's people, and I think about going to the promised land someday, I'm like, it'll be like Hawaii, the waters will be blue and beautiful, there will be palm trees and a nice breeze and beautiful tropical fruit. But in fact, the land that God gives Israel is 70% desert. And there's some really interesting reasons that I think God does that. And I think that that then is matched a bit in how we look at the book of Psalms. That the Psalms give voice to a lot of challenge and struggle and difficulty. And those Psalms of lament really dominate the first half of the book, outnumbering Psalms of praise. Which is weird because the book in Hebrew is, is called Praises. And I think we think in a lot of our Christian communities and circles, that um, praise is only when you can go, woohoo, God, yeah, awesome, way to go, and that that is really the best response to have. And if you have some complaints or laments or disagreements or frustrations, that's fine, but kind of limit that to one, maybe two verses every once in a while. And the rest of the time, just go, but God, you're awesome, right? Like, this is really hard, but I know you're going to take me through. But the Bible actually says it's okay to be frustrated and to be angry and to express that to God. Now, the Psalms themselves are full of poetry, not necessarily rhyming poetry like we think of today. There's no Dr. Seussing it in the book of Psalms, but they're poems and songs nonetheless. The Psalms are very sinewy in Hebrew. Hebrew is different than English, um, where we might have like six words to describe one thing. In Hebrew, they might have one word that can describe six different things. And so Hebrew doesn't waste words. They use fewer words to express a thought than in English. And so as they're communicating this in the Psalms, the poetry of the Psalms, they'll express one thought and then really sort of emphasize that thought by a second line. The second line often develops the thinking of the first line through repetition or synonymous thought rhyme rather than word rhyming and then adding intensity and specificity to that which the psalmist is declaring. So for example, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Well, how? How is God near to the brokenhearted? He saves those whose spirits are crushed. So it's poetry that You can hear it also a bit different in the Hebrew, but it's not always rhymy. But it intensifies those poetry thoughts. The poet also uses a lot of very vivid metaphors and succinct expressions with body parts often named. Like my heart, my eyes, my tears, my guts, my hands. It's very earthy. Psalm 40 actually says, your Torah is in my guts. Our English translation says heart because that sounds weird to us, doesn't it? So they want you, it's like in your innermost being. But in the Hebrew, the word is not heart, it's guts. Your law, your Torah is in the very essence of my being. It's in my guts. Psalm 42, tears have been my food day and night. Isn't that some incredible poetry? It's not just, I've been crying a lot. It's, I have not been able to be sustained by anything other than my tears. They are my only food. We can hear some of this in the Psalm of Lament in Psalm 6. You can listen with me. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. You see the doubling there, yeah? Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. How are you languishing? O Lord, heal me for my bones 
are shaking with terror. My soul, my nephesh, also is struck with terror. While you, O Lord, how long? Just how long? Turn, O Lord, save my life. Deliver me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. And Shaol, who can give you praise? I love that the psalmist right now is like, look, things are really bad. And if you're not going to rescue me or deliver me and I'm being crushed by all this, at least think about your reputation. Because nobody in Shaol can praise you. So you really don't want to kill me because this is the only way you're going to get this flowery language I'm giving you right now. I am weary with my moaning. The rabbi said in the commentary here that that David's moaning was so great that it felt as though his body was breaking in half. He could not contain it physically. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of my grief. They grow weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and struck with terror, and they shall turn back and in a moment be put to shame. That's the whole psalm. There's nothing pretty about it. There's nothing flowery. There's nothing sort of like, hey, guys, it's going to be okay. It's just... Things are really bad. I'm broken by this. My entire body is groaning and breaking. I'm weeping so much that I've flooded my bed and my couch with my tears. And enemies are around me. But the Lord's heard the sound of my weeping. But it doesn't say God's fixed it. It's just said that he hears. This is weird for us because we are in Christianity often not taught to pray such selfish prayers. So the psalmist is very interesting. Like all of the psalms are written from this first person. And it draws us directly into the storyline of the Bible. And it focuses on a very me experience. I'm having a hard time. The enemies are around me. I'm crying a lot. I'm in a lot of pain. God, where are you? How long? Amen. (laughs) there's a lot of me, me, me focused in that. And that's not something that we typically do within our practice of prayer. But the Psalms of Lament give voice to rage and anguish. They accuse God of abandonment, murder, of falling asleep on the job. They try to bribe God. They tell God to go away. And they give voice to very unchristian prayers regarding enemies, hoping that terrible things will happen to them, even to little children. Have you read the Psalms? Have you read these Psalms? Like when people say, oh, like pray the Psalms, and then you find that a good portion of them include things about like take vengeance upon my enemies and dash their children's heads against the rock. You're like, I don't know how to pray that prayer. Psalm 58, for example. I don't know if this is a psalm of lament or more just a cursing psalm. God, break their teeth in their mouth. Shatter the fangs of these lions, Adonai. May they be like a slug that melts as it moves. Like a stillborn baby that never sees the sun. God, that's awful, right? I would never want to pray such a prayer. 
Before your cook pots feel the heat of the burning thorns, may he blow them away, green and blazing alike. The righteous will rejoice to see vengeance done. They will wash their feet in the blood of the wicked, and people will say, yes, the righteous are rewarded. There is, after all, a God who judges the earth. I'm pretty sure if that were the weekly prayer that we included in our prayer time, you all would not be here. This would be like, that's that weird church that prays those vengeance prayers every week. Oh, dear God, (laughs) we should try to help them. So this prayer book is challenging for us. These prayers of lament seem to violate all the rules of Christian prayer practice, right? These aren't the prayers that we include in a sweet prayer book for the kids. They aren't the prayers that we put on like a cute prayer dice to bring about table conversation. Like, hey, God, what do you want to thank God for today with your kids? And you roll the dice and I want to thank God for this. Or I'm really, what should I be thankful for today? What should I pray for today? If you could ask God a question today, what would it be? Maybe that one, you can ask the questions. But this is not how we typically talk about prayer. When I was growing up, I read a book of poetry. It was very, very popular in my day by Shel Silverstein, A Light in the Attic, anybody? And uh, I think he gets the prayers this kind of closely, right? The prayer of the selfish child. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my toys to break. So none of the other kids can use them. Amen. I feel like that could belong right there. I mean, that's actually much better than let's dance in the blood of our enemies. <laughs> And the world will go, look, the righteous have won, right? Like that's broken toys, not so bad. But the Psalms of Lament give voice to the full emotional experience of what it is to be human in this world. The Psalms enable us to bring into our conversation with God feelings and thoughts that most of us think we need to get rid of before God will be interested in hearing from us. The laments and the shocking part of the Psalms Do not sanctify what is shameful. For example, the desire to kill our enemies. They're not saying that that's good. They're not saying God said it. They're saying a person said it, and they yelled it at God. But the Psalms teach us that change can happen to our hearts, and we can be transformed when we are in the presence of God. The psalmist often does not end in the same place where they start. We can feel desperate and angry as we cry out to God, and we can also have confidence that God can help. We can rage, where are you, how long? And we can also declare at the same time, God is near, God will deliver. It reminds me of Daniel Tiger. Two feelings at the same time, that's okay. Love that, right? This is the entire book of Psalms. Sometimes you'll feel two feelings at the same time, and that's okay. And the honesty and the authenticity that the psalmist invites in to our liturgy is beautiful. And it's necessary because God's not fooled anyway, right? The psalmist gives voice to the honest, realistic, intimate life with God, full of both pain and praise. When we walk into God and we're like, it's all great, everything's fine, like this really horrible, awful thing happened, but it's fine, God knows we're lying, right? And you can't really have a good relationship with somebody that you're lying to all the time. It's not honest. And if it's not honest, it's not intimate. Because we are people of resurrection hope, 
We often think that in order to be a good Christian, we cannot have fear or doubt or anger or give voice to those most vengeful thoughts. But the problem with traditional notions of prayer is that we cannot have an intimate relationship with someone in whom we cannot speak honestly. Honesty is required. Years ago when Spark was starting, I used to keep saying over and over again, I want a place where people can come and they can ask all their questions and they don't have to pretend like they always have it together. And if that week they only believe this for now and not this or none of it at all, I want them to be able to say that and be in community that can hold that space without voting anybody off the island. And I've had other pastoral conversations with clergy and professors and leaders who have said, gee, that makes me nervous. How can you create a space where people can walk in and say, well, I don't believe in Jesus this week. And I'm like, Jesus already knows that. Jesus doesn't need my help defending him. And I either think he's real and can handle that, or I don't. But a lot of the reason why all of that exists and is radically welcomed here is because all of you exist, I exist, and we are radically welcomed in Christ. And so all of you, the fullness of it, is all welcomed here, and you don't have to pretend. John Calvin agrees with me. The Psalms, I'm just the Psalms are an anatomy of all parts of the soul. But I just mean simply that the Psalms give voice to all of us, including our negative emotions and our emotional honesty. The Psalms do not paint a glossy picture. The Psalms show our familiar world with difficulties all too real and sometimes intractable. And the Bible is relentlessly realistic about the world and our situation in it. And I'm so deeply grateful for this because it makes it so that my whole self can come to worship when I come to God. It is an embodied self. The whole of me is welcome. And in fact, it was to give you this beautiful word that we actually say in English every single weekend when we are talking about the prayer, the number one commandment, that we are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. The word for soul in Hebrew is nephesh. And the Hebrew Bible doesn't have actually a concept of a soul because it, didn't just, it did not divide your body from soul. That's a Greek thing. Gnosticism, it comes later. In Hebrew thought, the soul is not separate from a body. It's actually your neck. Like the word for nephesh best kind of describes this area. And if my nephesh is cut, then my life is cut off. So it's my whole embodied self. And every time we see the word soul in our text, if we kind of retranslate that to either nephesh, just leave it in the Hebrew, don't translate it at all, or leave it my embodied self, the Psalms may read a bit differently. I love God with all of my embodied self. And I think that the Psalms invite that full nephesh experience to it. You can hear it here, Psalm 13, verse 2. How long must I bear pain in my nephesh? So if we read that in our English, it's often translated soul. And have sorrow in my heart all day long. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? How long shall I bear pain in my full embodied self, in everything that I am? How long, Lord, do I have to bear this pain? 
And I think the Psalms are trying to unite the fullness of the totality of who we are and bring all of it into worship with God. And honesty is important when we come before God, but it's not everything. Wisdom is important too, right? Isn't this true like trying oftentimes to teach kids what's important to say? And they're like, but it's true. You're like, yeah, but it's not kind, right? We can have some wisdom here. We don't, we don't have to say everything like, man, just some, when some grownups lacking total filter, right? So what might be honest may not be wise to communicate. And what I really love about the Psalms is that there's some push and pull and tug in all of that. What's distinctive about Israel's religious perception is that the very knowledge that we are called into fully intimate relationship with God, who created the heavens and the earth, a relationship that's both probing and transformative. And the Psalms honor our experience, and yet at the same time, they keep us from becoming mired in it. It doesn't just give voice to anger and rage and frustration and hurt and pain without the context of a creator who's intimately in love with us, cares for us, and is listening and cares that we are suffering. The suffering doesn't just exist there. It exists in the cradle of the arms of somebody who cares and who listens. The Psalms guard us against the temptation to have ideas about God and just have theology abstracted from an ongoing relationship with God. The Psalms protect us from religious notions that have been purified from the ups and downs of life. It's that unification of all of it and the wisdom to know that even as we suffer and even as we are frustrating, God hears our prayer. That the creator of the world cares for us. That the creator of the world allowed for these psalms of lament and these rages and these cries to be recorded and written down so that when we would read them, we would know that God welcomes the fullness of humanity into relationship with him. The psalms of lament also help us to hear the cries of our neighbor. Maybe you and I aren't the ones suffering right now, but for sure there are those who are suffering. Maybe your bed, your couch is not drowning with tears. Maybe my food is not tears for me all day long, but it certainly is for many. Psalm 119.83 I am like a skin bottle in the smoke. The psalmist says, like, I feel like disposable. I feel as though I might just disappear and drift away. And there are people in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our families, in our homes, and in the world at large who feel this type of fragility of life. And so our prayer as we listen to the psalms of lament aren't just that they would instruct our own grief, but that they would instruct our compassion for others. And as we arrive at those psalms where we think, I I don't resonate with this at all. I don't have any enemies. I want to dance in their blood, right? But then we might start to pray for those who do feel such hurt and pain and suffering and rage. The Psalms of Lament teach us that happy endings are not guaranteed. 
There's nothing in the Psalms that say, okay, I'm going to say all these right things and pray all these right things, and I'm going to live this very, very faithful life, and then as a result, I will have a blessing. Hashtag blessed, right? It'll all just work out great for me. And I think Anne Lamott has said things like this over the years. I've listened to her for, for decades now. She'll say something like, if that's been your truth, where you've lived faithfully and it's all worked out for you, that's fantastic. Just don't sit in my row because I'm not interested in being friends with you. <laughs> that's not been my reality. I like that a lot, by the way. When we lament, though, we clear the way for praise. And we start to move our hearts towards a time when God may turn our tears to joy, if not in this world, in the world to come. So laments often start with petitions and complaints, but they often turn towards praise. Not because the ending has changed, not because life circumstances have become deeply improved, not because we received the right report from the doctor, not because we got the right job we wanted or found the right partner or our kids grew up exactly as we always wanted them to or all any of those things. It's just simply that we get transformed in our honest communication with the creator of the world and the creator of our own hearts. And we then move to a place not because a happy ending is guaranteed, but just a place where we can say, I, yes, like Job at the end of the book we talked about a few weeks ago, you're God and I'm not. So I'd like to actually see if there's anyone here, and you can let me know in emails or hang out for coffee or whatever, who might want to start the experiment of praying the Psalms. There's 150 of them, so it's only 150 days. One a day, it's totally fine. What might happen if we united our voice with the voice of our ancestors of the last two, 3,000 years and started to listen in to that first-person account of how they came before the Lord. Ellen Davis, Dr. Ellen Davis, who's incredible, and you should just read and listen to all of her things. Um, she has this fantastic book called Getting Involved with God, Rediscovering the Old Testament, which I have used a lot in this talk, and I've, I go back to this book over and over and over again. She says this, the Psalms are undisguisedly human utterances. The Psalter is the only part of the Bible that's clearly formulated as human speech, packaged, ready to be put directly into our mouths. The Psalms give us words to pray when we do not know how to pray as we ought. She's referencing Paul's verse there in the letter to Romans 8.26. I think it's really easy, for me at least, that when I open up the Psalter and I start to pray beautiful psalms like Psalm 139, search me, God, and know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts, see if there's any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is that beautiful psalm like, you know, you know me, you knit me together in my inmost womb. It's just so beautiful. But if you keep reading through the psalm at the end, it's like, and by the way, kill all my enemies. Just so you know, like, this still qualifies as a lament slash cursing psalm, even in the beauty of it. And when I get to the verses that resonate, like, okay, Lord, like inward meditation and, and prayer and all of this, and it's so gorgeous and beautiful, it's easy for me to get there. I get that. It's hard for me to understand the other ones, but I'm kind of feeling challenged to try to do it, to try to start to let it activate my own compassion for the suffering and the rage that's in our world. When we pray the Psalms, praises, laments, in a sense, 
The world itself doesn't become safer. It doesn't change. But our place in it, our movement in it, becomes more secure. We've spent time, honest time, with the creator of our flesh and blood, and we've prayed and united ourselves into a story of faith. The Psalms can give us something to pray daily. They can slow us down. Each one is a whole. And if one line stops you, then let yourself be stopped. If you want to pray the Psalms. So to that end, let's pray together Psalm 42. If you would like to read it aloud with me, you are welcome. If you would simply like to close your eyes and listen, you are welcome. Just as a deer longs for running streams, God, I long for you. I am thirsty for God, for the living God. When can I come and appear before God? My tears are my food day and night. While all day people ask me, where is your God? I recall as my feelings well up within me how I go with the crowd to the house of God with sounds of joy and praise from the throngs observing the festival. My soul, why are you so downcast? Why are you groaning inside me, hoping God since I will praise him again for the salvation that comes from his presence. My God, when I feel so downcast, I remind myself of you. From the land of Yardan, from the peaks of Hermon, from the hill of Mizar. Deep is calling to deep. At the thunder of your waterfalls, all your surging rapids and waves are sweeping over me. By day, Adonai commands his grace, and at night, his song is with me as a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning under pressure by the enemy? My adversary's taunts make me feel as if my bones were crushed, as they ask me all day long, where is your God? My soul, why are you so downcast? And why are you groaning inside me? Hope in God, since I will praise him again for being my Savior and God. The Psalms of Lament defy our definition of a faithful life as one without suffering. And so does our weekly remembrance of the Last Supper. Jesus led a faithful life and on the cross cried out in lament, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We just need to be reminded that at the very core and essence of our faith as Christians is that a faithful life does not mean no suffering. Jesus has shown us that a faithful life means that we have a person, a God we can cry out to, the fullness of the Father who hears and who cares. We are not alone. I'll invite the worship team up as we move into a practice of remembrance 
and of celebration for all that Jesus' sacrifice meant, but also for lament that there is so much suffering in our world. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome. Your full, radical, embodied self, all of you are welcome at this table.